It's found on page 1006 in the Pew Bible. We read, the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive. After three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, Tell people... His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray this morning, our Father. We are mindful of the words of the Lord Jesus. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And so, Lord, we come on this Easter Sunday, we come on this day in which uh, we are celebrating and proclaiming that the tomb is empty. And, Father, we confess our utter need of the help of the resurrected Christ. Lord, we ask that you would give us ears to hear this morning. We pray that you would give us eyes to see. Father, we pray that the reality and the truthfulness of the gospel will be driven home into our hearts in a way that has not been true before. For we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You're being lied to. Let me say that again. You're being lied to. I suppose at one level, not only do we know this, but we've come to expect it. Now, we don't call it lying. We call it spin or creative marketing or some other such euphemism, but the fact still remains. 
had a laugh this past week. The Washington Post, which is a certainly left of center ideologically, reported that in a recent speech given by our president, they found eight, and I quote, factual discrepancies. You're being lied to. Now, the fact that these lies come from established institutions has a rather sinister consequence. We're now prone to believe that all institutions are lying to us. So, when an institution founded 2,000 years ago proclaims on an annual basis that the tomb is empty, which is a stunning claim, our first response is to wonder why this particular institution is lying to us. Friends, this morning, in the bulletin in front of you, you see an outline for our time together. And you see there something called the big idea. The big idea is, in one sentence, what the sermon is about. The big idea this morning is pretty simple. The resurrection of Jesus is not a lie. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a lie. Matthew's gospel is actually written to people who have been sold a particular lie. In fact, it's recorded for us. Matthew tells us as much at the end of this account that we read this morning in Matthew chapter 28, verse 15, that the lie about what happened to Jesus has been spread among the Jews to this day. And we need to understand that that particular lie is a very powerful one. For the Jewish nation was waiting. They were anxiously awaiting the coming of a Messiah. A Messiah who had been promised to them by God thousands of years before. A Messiah who was going to be of the line and lineage of their great King David. And they supposed a Messiah who was going to liberate them from the rule of the Roman Empire. And so any lie related to the Messiah is a lie that immediately had their attention. Their great hope was that God's Messiah was going to come. And now here, the very ones who were the guardians of that hope, the very ones who were the proclaimers of that message, the very ones who were to shepherd them in their messianic hope, are lying to them. Well, three things we want to see this morning as we consider the statement that the resurrection of Jesus is not a lie. The first one is this. We need to look at the anti-resurrection precautions. We need to look at the anti-resurrection precautions. In his wonderful commentary on the book of Matthew, a scholar by the name of Frederick Dale Bruner uh, translates our text this way. Uh, we read that it's the, uh, it's the chief priests. We read that it's the Pharisees. He translates it this way. He says, the senior pastors and the serious ones. So we get some sense of what it is that their role, their responsibility is. These are the people who are to watch over and safeguard the souls of Israel. They are the spiritual leaders 
of Jerusalem. And the spiritual leaders, having crucified the Lord Jesus, having had satisfaction that he is dead, and having seen the fact because one of their own, a man named Joseph of Arimathea, donated a tomb for Jesus to be buried in, they realize he's dead. You would think at that point, okay, he's dead, our work here is done, but not so fast. They go to Pilate, and they say, Pilate, listen, uh, this guy made a really, really astonishing claim. See, the men who conspired against him knew exactly what he had claimed. Verse 63, we remember how that imposter or a Bruner translates it, that scam artist said, while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. So what does Pilate do? Pilate, who didn't want to crucify Jesus in the first place. Pilate, who is utterly convinced. He says it not once, but three different times to those who would see Jesus put to death. I find nothing wrong in this man. Pilate, tired of dealing with all of the nonsense and all of the malarkey, says, okay, here's the deal. Uh, you have a guard of soldiers. Go and make it as secure as you can. And they did have a guard. The Romans allowed the Jewish authorities to keep a band of mercenaries. They couldn't be Jews. They had to be Gentiles, Gentiles who were under the pay of the Jewish authorities. Well, you have your own militia. Go. Secure the tomb as best you can. We're told that they seal the stone. In other words, they, they took rope, wrapped it around it, sealed it with some kind of wax so that you couldn't just slide this mammoth stone out of the way over the mouth of the cave that served as Jesus' tomb. So that's exactly what they do. Now, these anti-resurrection precautions are important because one of the things that you will sometimes hear from those who want to absolutely contest the claims of the resurrection is they, they want to step back and go, well, that's nice that you say that, but you forget that Jesus himself never claimed that he was going to rise from the dead. All of this resurrection talk was created later. It was, it was constructed by the church because they needed, they needed a resurrected hero. This is the guy they needed to create. And so they did. And the, you have to then deal with the question that the text, the text then implies to us. Which is why if Jesus never claimed he would rise from the dead, why are those who committed, who are committed to seeing him in the tomb? Why would they take these steps? Why would they go before Pilate on the Sabbath day, breaking the Sabbath, to go into the presence of a Gentile, a hated Gentile, and say, hey, wait a minute, we need to deal with this. To say that Jesus never claimed he would rise from the dead is to ignore what the text very clearly teaches. They came to him and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Those who sought the death of Jesus did everything humanly possible to prevent the resurrection. Well, that brings us to our second point. 
that this story is too strange to not be true. This story is too strange to not be true. If you think about it, if you're, if you're someone that you don't normally come to church and you just, uh, you're here because it's Christmas or because it's Easter and you got invited and man, we're glad that you're here. But if you're sitting here reading this, you probably feel like you're watching an episode of Doctor Who. Like this is science fiction. Who in the world writes this? I mean, this is a highly unlikely story. In some ways, it's too unlikely. So let me suggest something to you this morning as we think about how unlikely this story is. Namely, that if you were going to create a lie, if all of this was a hoax, if the resurrection of Jesus was some carefully crafted myth, you would think they would do better than this. They would make the lie a little more believable. I mean, first of all, they have entirely the wrong witnesses to this event. The text tells us in chapter 28, verse 1, that it's Mary Magdalene and the other Mary who went to see the tomb. In other words... The first two women who can speak to the reality of the resurrection, the first two witnesses, are women. We need to understand that in the day in which Matthew is writing, the testimony of women, it's not quite worthless, but it's close. On top of that, one of the witnesses is a woman named Mary Magdalene. Now, just so you know, uh, Mary Magdalene was not actually a prostitute. That got started uh, in, in uh, to about the end of the, the, the Middle Ages uh, in a sermon one of the popes gave declaring that because she had, in fact, been possessed by demons, she must have clearly been a prostitute. The Bible doesn't say any such thing. What the Bible does tell us about Mary Magdalene, though, is that she is a die-hard, faithful disciple of the Lord Jesus One commentator put it this way, she will not leave Jesus even though he must leave her. So when you think that Mary Magdalene is one of the first people to go to the tomb, you realize, hey, whatever she's going to say is going to be pro-Jesus. So if you're looking for someone who's both credible and someone who might at least pretend to be impartial, Mary Magdalene is the worst possible choice you could make. She's a woman. She's a diehard disciple of Jesus. She goes places his 12 disciples are afraid to go. And we're thinking, guys, you got to give me a little more believable story than this. Give us a credible witness. Give us one who's not a complete Jesus fangirl. Give us something that doesn't smell so much like home cooking. But it gets worse. It gets worse. How does Jesus get out of the tomb? Look at verse 2. Behold, there was a great earthquake, 
For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Okay, wait. (laughs) This story is not far-fetched enough with the women and the women who are completely on board uh, with Jesus. It's not bad enough that they're the ones who are giving the testimony. Now we have earthquakes, angels, and fainting guards. Let's just think about, I mean, we, obviously we go, well, the first two are pretty improbable. I mean, if there's this great earthquake, why doesn't the whole city feel it? And the angel thing, okay, we, we might give a pass for that because, after all, Alabama believes in angels, and so we can believe in angels as well. But what is this thing with the guards? They, they faint. What? What? Do you know what the punishment was for falling asleep on guard duty? Death. Is death. Hmm. Okay. So we have women, women who are completely on Team Jesus. We have earthquakes, we have angels, we have guards who faint, even though the punishment for sleeping on guard duty is death. But there's more. Look at what the angel says to the, to the two women in verse 7. And then what Jesus says to them in verse 10. He gives them a command. He gives them a commission. He says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go and tell my disciples, and hey, we're road tripping. We're going to Galilee. And we're told twice in the text, you need to go to Galilee. Now, friends, Galilee was the ancient uh, Israeli, uh, basically it was their version of Colon, Nebraska. There's not much there. Why does Jesus not say to them, hey, I need you to come here. I need you to come to me. I, we, we need to talk about what's going to happen next. Why does he not say to them, hey, let's go to the temple because I'm going to come rolling in, baby. And listen, nobody's going to be able to deny this because here I am in the temple, resurrected. Why not go to Jerusalem? Why not come rolling back in like he did previously in the triumphal entry? Why not do that? Why in the world does he say, why would he tell them to go to Galilee? Jesus needs to fire his PR firm. He needs entirely new people handling his publicity. I mean, this is the greatest single miracle in the history of the world, and you're not going to come rolling up on the temple? Chuck Colson was a lawyer, a very bright, very good lawyer, who was special counsel to uh, President Richard Nixon. As such, he was a part of what became known as the Watergate scandal. And Colson was one of the group that actually spent time in prison 
for his role in the Watergate break-ins and in the subsequent cover-up and what's known in history as the Watergate scandal. I love what Colson says about the resurrection of Jesus and the truthfulness of it. He wrote, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it were not true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Friends, this story is so strange. It is so remarkable. If you look at it with the eyes of Matthew's readers, it is so preposterous that it can only be true. If you were making this up, you would write the story entirely different. You wouldn't have women. You wouldn't have Jesus' number one fangirl leading the parade. You wouldn't have earthquakes, angels, and fainting guards, oh my. And you would have Jesus presenting himself to all of the religious elite at the temple in the city, not telling the disciples, let's go camping in Galilee. It's too strange to not be true. Well, that brings us to the third point. See, if the resurrection was a lie, then there's no reason to say anything about it. You just let it play itself out. But that's not what happens. No, instead, their response to the reality of the resurrection is they're going to combat the truth with a lie. They're going to create their own story. They're going to create their own spin. They're going to engage in their own factual discrepancies. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was a, a, a Russian dissident and who wrote widely, uh, spoke about living in communist Russia, and I, it was interesting how he put it. He said, uh, growing up, we knew that they were lying to us. They knew that they were lying to us, and they knew that we knew that they were lying to us. Well, that's exactly what's going on in this text. They know that they're lying. We also understand that how in the world Matthew got this account of what happened when the scribes and the Pharisees assembled together when the Sanhedrin gathered after they had taken counsel. How in the world does Matthew have those kinds of details? Well, it's only because one member of the Sanhedrin converted to faith in Jesus and was basically the inside man. He informed on what was going on. They knew they were lying. And it's not even a good lie. 
I mean, again, let's put our sort of MythBusters hat on and go, okay, what's happening here? Um, well, uh, hey, uh, they, they all fell asleep. And while they all fell asleep, Jesus' disciples came and they stole away the body. Okay. Time out. If you were all asleep, how do you know it was the disciples? If they came in and rolled this massive stone away and broke the seal and did everything you'd have to do and, and grunt and sweat and probably cuss a little bit to get that rock to move, how did you not hear them? And if the sentence for falling asleep on guard duty is death, why are you still here? Why are you not dead? The story just doesn't add up. Friends, Matthew does something really stunning in his gospel. And I'm afraid uh, oftentimes we, we, we will probably miss it. But he, in, at the beginning of the gospel and then at the end of the gospel, he does the same thing. He tells us, that there are pagans who come and testify to the reality of the Lord Jesus. At the beginning of the book, it's three wise men who come from the east because they've seen his star, and they go to King Herod and they say, hey, the king's been born. And at the end of the book, it's these pagan militia. It's, it's, it's this praetorian guard who come and they say to uh, the religious leaders, hey, we're not sure exactly what happened, but dude's not there anymore. And in each instance, both at the beginning and at the end, these pagans who tell Jewish leadership the truth, the response is they try to eradicate the story. They try to kill Jesus. Or at least having killed him once, they try to refute the truth of the gospel with a lie. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a lie. Now, you might be sitting here this morning and going, okay, uh, we get it. It's not a lie. Uh, that's fine. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, there's ham to go eat. Can you stop talking now so we can go hang out with family? The question you should be asking, that let's just go ahead and ask it together, is, well, so what? What does it matter that this guy Jesus was resurrected from the dead? Well, Meredith read for us why it matters. In our New Testament reading for this morning, we saw, we heard exactly why it matters so much that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Let me read again for you what she read for us. In, second, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Why does it matter? It matters because the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrates for us that his atoning death was accepted by God the Father. 
that sin has been paid for, that your sin has been atoned. And in Jesus and in Jesus alone, there is forgiveness of sins. But if the resurrection never happened, then there is no forgiveness. But Paul doesn't stop there. See, it isn't just about the forgiveness of sins. It isn't just about this beautiful transaction that happened on the cross, whereas Jesus took my sin, my shame, uh, all of the ways in which I had failed God. He took that upon himself and died for my sin. It's not just about that. But Paul tells us that the entire trajectory of the universe is now changed. Verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 15, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign. Friends, in just a few moments, we're going to come together and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And one of the things that the Lord's Supper proclaims to us each and every week is that Jesus Christ is coming again. Not only did he rise from the grave, not only did he leave the tomb empty, but he is still alive. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father, but he is coming again. Now, when he came the first time, folks missed it. But when he comes the second time, there will be no way to miss it. Because the Bible tells us that he's coming in power, he's coming in glory, and he's coming in judgment. Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Knowing then that the tomb is empty, knowing that the resurrection of Jesus is not a lie means that we understand there is forgiveness for sin to be had. But it also means that if you're sitting here this morning and you're saying to yourself, well, that sounds great, but you know, I'm not really into this whole forgiveness thing. I'm not into this whole Jesus thing. Okay, Uh, please understand, he's coming again in power and in glory and in judgment. And so either this morning or at some point, you're going to have to deal with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is Lord and he is the Christ. You can deal with him positively or you can face the judgment that the Bible is coming. But you will deal with him. The resurrection is true and you will deal with the Lord Jesus Christ at some point. You can do it this morning or it can be when he comes again in power and in glory, and in judgment. Let's pray. Father, we're here this morning. Uh, At least uh, most of us are here uh, because we believe that the tomb is empty. And we believe that the resurrection is not a lie. And yet, 
Lord, we, we confess that those of us here who profess the name of the Lord Jesus oftentimes live as though the tomb is not empty. We live as though uh, the resurrection never happened. We act as though the Lord Jesus is not coming again in power and in glory and in judgment. And we live not in a healthy fear of that day, but we live in this sort of strange fear of the world in which we live. Or we live in this strange fear of our families. Or we live in a strange fear of the various and assorted expectations that we think are placed on ourselves. So forgive us. Father, we thank you that what is celebrated today does not just mean that there is forgiveness of sin for us as individuals. It also means that the Lord Jesus is coming again in power and in glory. It means that all that is wrong with our world is going to be put right. It means that what you intended for your creation from the very beginning is going to be finally realized as Christ defeats all the authorities and rulers and powers that are aligned against him. And we thank you for this. And we pray all this now in Jesus' name.